to be able to see what secular society has turned the Christmas season into. And we all fall prey to it to some degree. It's funny, what should be one of the happiest times of year is often the most stressful. Even down to idiosyncratic things like gift giving. Gift giving is stressful. Both acquiring the gift, fighting through the stores and the parking lots, or even sifting through online and and going through all of that. It's stressful. And then there are people that deal with a lot of shame and guilt because maybe they don't have enough resources to get the gifts that they would like to give. Others feel slighted because they weren't given a gift. Crime rates skyrocket this time of year. Lock your car. Because people that haven't been there or haven't been present for their family or haven't been a good parent all year long want to kind of save the year with a last minute special gift and don't have the resources to do it. So they seek to steal it from someone else. Desperate people do desperate things all over, all over some material trinkets, some, some stuff that will be forgotten about in a couple of months, if that. And it begs the question, why do we ascribe such value to things? Some people might retort, well, I want to give a gift because I love the person who I'm giving it to. And that's commendable. But the real value of your love doesn't come from your gift. It comes from your heart. And maybe that's the problem. It is a lot cheaper to give a gift than it is to give your heart. The Corinthian church is an amazing study in scripture. They started out as pagan Gentiles with no Hebrewistic or any training in Judaism or background. And yet the power of the gospel begin to explode in Corinth and the apostle Paul takes on the responsibility of fathering and pastoring that church. And they were a crazy bunch coming out of pagan idolatry. Their morals were detestable. Uh, Paul had to write to them. We even get to eavesdrop reading the letters that he wrote on some of their moral issues and their failings. Paul wrote to one of them and said that he took a, a man to task who was having relations with his father's wife. And... Paul absolutely uh, ripped into them over allowing this kind of deplorable behavior. There was uh, rampant sexual immorality. There was uh, rampant overindulgence. These were the people in scripture that were getting drunk on the communion wine in the church. And Paul writes to them and says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Why would you defile the Lord's house with your debauchery? And and they were a, a mess of a church. And yet, through the teaching and the preaching of the word, and through receiving the Holy Spirit, something amazing happened. Spiritual gifts begin to explode in the church of Corinth. If you study all of the churches that Paul uh, had oversight of, The church at Corinth was the most gifted spiritually. And so as God, the Holy Spirit, begin to indwell and fill these believers as they begin to grow in their faith, they begin to demonstrate dominance in the culture, not just in their little church, but dominance in the entire region because of their powerful spiritual gifts. Well... Then all of a sudden, the pendulum swings the other way. 
They started out as these morally bankrupt people who were just grateful to be saved by amazing grace. But now that they've got some gifts and now that they're getting acknowledged for the power that they can produce out of their spiritual gifts, they swung the other way. And now they're prideful, judgmental, and high-minded because of their gift. Won't people switch on you in a second? Started out just humble and grateful to be in the church. Never thought somebody like me would ever be in the church. Now you're looking down your nose at other people because you feel high-minded because you have a gift. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13 to balance them. Most of the time in, in, in faith circles and in religious circles, people take turns jumping to the extremes. What you want to search for in a faith community is balance. Anytime you hear too much on one extreme, it's an alarm. It's a warning that something is wrong. The, the, the safety and the beauty is always found in balance. So Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, and he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Let, let me unpack that. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if you have it on the screen. He says, Though I speak with the tongue of, tongues of men or of angels. What are the tongues of men? Well, one of the gifts of the Spirit, you probably know, is speaking in other tongues. But speaking in tongues has two categories. There's the tongues of men, then there's the tongues of angels. Let me explain the tongues of men really quickly, because if you've never seen it, it's astonishing. One time I was in a church. Uh, in fact, the church that Pastor Katie uh, was a part of before we got married in uh, Ohio. And... There was a group of young children uh, from Africa. They, they had a choir and they would tour different churches in the States and they would sing and give a testimony and whatnot. It's beautiful. Well, at the end of the service, someone in uh, this church began to just speak in tongues as they normally do. And the choir director falls down on the floor weeping. Because the person that was just doing what they thought was speaking in tongues was actually speaking the native language of the choir director from Africa. And a very personal, specific message was given by that person who was speaking in tongues, and it was understood by the choir director from Africa. Okay. That's the gift of tongues as it relates to men or mankind. Okay? So when he says, though I have the ability to speak in tongues, the tongues of men, and I have the ability to speak in the tongues of angels, what's he mean by tongues of angels? That's the unknown tongue, uh, what we would classify as a personal prayer language. When a believer is worshiping the Lord, having devotion, and they begin to pray in the spirit. When we talk about praying in the spirit, that's the tongues of angels. That's what he's alluding to. Paul said, I can do that. Paul said, I can, I can do tongues and interpretation. I can, I can do it as it pertains to mankind. He said, or I can speak in the unknown tongue, the tongue of angels. But look what he says. But if I don't have love, all my amazing gifts of tongues, here's what it becomes. A sounding brass or a clanging or a dissonant jarring sound. Is what Paul says that that is. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy. Now if you've ever been around a real gift of prophecy. It'll make the hair stand up on your head. <clears throat> a true anointed prophet can tell you things no one knows but you. And it is astonishing to see it in action. Paul said, though I have the gift of prophecy. And understand all mysteries. It's the gift of revelation knowledge. And all knowledge. And though I have all faith. So that I could remove mountains. But have not love. Look at this. He says. I am nothing. Now. People talk about. Uh, I've heard it said. About the nine fruits of the spirit. And they also talk about nine gifts of the spirit. There is a distinction between the two. But that's an incomplete list. To get an exhaustive list of the 
gifts of the Spirit. You have to look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. These are, are the following is an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts manifested through believers by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they have, we have leadership, administration, teaching, knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, discernment, exhortation, faith, or the working of miracles. Those are one and the same. You have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. You have gifts of service or helps. You have gifts of mercy. You have people that have a gift of giving. And then finally, you have hospitality. I wanted you to see the list because I want you to know God did not save anybody without also giving them a gift. Some people have more of these. Some people have less. Some people have them all. It's very rare, but, but there are gifts in the house. And the reason why I wanted you to see all 18 is because the commentaries on this chapter all agree that the Corinthian church was an anomaly. No, the world's never seen a church like it. Because all 18 of these gifts were active in the church, activated and being demonstrated. Do you understand? If you had a church like that today in the world, the, the world would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ very quickly. Okay. Because most believers come to church and they have gifts, but their gifts lie dormant. Okay, or their gifts have not been activated, or they're not using their gift, or they're mad with the gift they got because they wish they had another one, and so they don't use what they were called to do because they're jealous of somebody else that they like that has a gift they don't have. And there's all kind of convoluted issues that keep people from flowing in their gifts. But in the case of the Corinthian church, all 18 were active. They were taking dominion in their region because all of the people coming to the church had their gifts activated and had their gifts flowing. And so that's what makes the next part that Paul says stunning. He says, though I have prophecy and understand mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so I can move mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. So verse one and two, he attacks people and, and levels them because they, they are ignoring and rejecting love. They're not making love primary in their life. They're making their gift primary in their life. And Paul said, when you do that, even with your gift itself, it amounts to nothing. Then in verse 3, he goes after people who are high-minded and impressed with themselves over their giving. Okay. They think the world ought to shut down and everybody ought to bow down and cry holy because they are a giving, generous person. Verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, that's another way of saying sacrifice. Though I make continual sacrifices for the cause of Christ and for the kingdom. I give my body to be burned, but have not love. It profits me nothing. Profit is what you have left over when the transaction's complete. I'm going to say it again. Profit is what you have left over when the transaction is complete. And Paul said, you can give away, not just be generous, not just be charitable. You can give away everything you've got to the poor and you can make sacrifices to the point that it hurts you. But if you're ignoring and rejecting love, then at the end of the transaction, there will be no profit. Then... He takes on the responsibility of defining love to recalibrate their hearts. Because if you go off a scriptural view of love, it may be true that we don't really love anybody the way we should. Now, Hollywood taught you about love. Your family may have taught you something about love. But when Paul begins to define biblical love, I don't care how mature you are or how long you've been in the church, it is convicting. It's an indictment against us. Listen to what Paul said. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. That knocked out half the church right there. <laughs> 
Because we may suffer and we may stay. I didn't bounce. I didn't leave. I didn't, you know, just walk out. But, but we sure ain't going to suffer and stay. And while we're suffering and staying, also be. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. You know how when y'all get in an argument, you start listing all the things you do. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. I'll just keep going. Does not seek its own. I got to have some time for me. Is not provoked. Are you provocable? Whoo, that was quiet. This whole section totally left me out. Is not provoked. This is, this is a bad one. Thinks no evil. It's all you private investigators. Service started off so good. It's getting tight in here now. Tight. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Doesn't like to catch people. Caught you in a lie. Caught you in a compromising position. Caught you in something that I know I can file away and use it for the next five years in every fight where I know I'm wrong. Because if I bring up that iniquity, you'll have to shut down your point. But rejoices in truth. Stop. That sounds so neat, nice, and biblical. It doesn't say rejoices in good truth. The truth cuts both ways. Sometimes the truth can be good. Sometimes the truth can be bad. But love, either way, rejoices because whether it's good or it's bad, at least it was. Love doesn't punish people for telling them the truth. A lot of times we beat our chest and say, I want the truth. I demand the truth. But the truth is the last time we told you the truth, you turned it into a penalty for seven months. You wouldn't let it go. What was told and what was told was the truth. Bears all things. So all you people that just leave when stuff gets hard. Can't bear nothing. Can't handle a good, firm argument. Or an occasional bent spoon or broken plate. <laughs> Sit there and look at me. It's over. I'm leaving. Can't handle nothing. Because society's made it too easy for you to skip in and out of relationships, in and out of jobs, in and out of connections, in and out of marriages, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things endures. All things love never fails. Where there are prophecies, you get so amazed about prophecy. Well, look what Paul said. Whether there are prophecies, they're going to fail at some point. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And then, and then he goes to verse 11, 
just to, just to smack them real good. Because a good preacher every now and then will smack you with the reality of the truth and see, you know, how you respond to it. He says, when I was a child. Now he's saying this, you know that scripture, you can quote it, but he's saying it in reference to everything he just said about love. When I was a child, I thought as a child, okay, I spoke as a child, understood as a child. When I, when I grew up, I put away childish things. He's alluding to the fact that to remain unloving by biblical standard, by that list we just read, to remain unloving is childish. He said, as old as you are, you're loving like a little kid. Look at you, 50 years old, been married 30 years and still loving like a child. How do children love? Selfishly. And then in verse 13, he ties a bow on it. Paul always does that in his chapters. He said, now abide faith, hope, love. These three, they do abide, but the greatest is love. What is he saying? People that are focused on their gifts will have great faith because it takes great faith to operate in your spiritual gift. It is amazing. If you could see it on the inside, my faith meter right now is all the way up. It's all the way full because it takes great faith for me to stand here and speak to you. I am a social recluse. Okay. Talking to people makes me nervous. Okay. I, I, I get social anxiety to the point I'd just rather go somewhere and be by myself. And yet right now, I can speak to you so freely and so easily. Why? It's my gift, okay? And my gift is flowing because I'm full of faith in what God gave me. So people that are focused on their gift, they'll be full of faith. Now, people that are giving, they'll be full of hope because giving will always keep you hopeful. That's the nature of giving. The scripture says in Genesis, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed, time, and harvest. The farmer never sows a seed without expectation and hope because to give, to release something from your hand is also to take hold of hope. Every time you give something out of your hand, you also take something because you cannot give one thing without taking hold of hope. So people that are gift focused, they're going to have faith. People that are giving focused, they're going to have hope. But he said the greatest why? Because if you have love, love will give you faith. It believes all things. If you have love, love will give you hope. It hopes all things. In other words, if you have love, you've got it all. That if you have love and you will demonstrate it, you have more power than people who can exhibit all 18 spiritual gifts. But you would rather prophesy than operate in love. Some of the most anointed, gifted, amazing people that I know are incredible with their gift and terrible with their love. And Paul said to them, you've majored on the minor. You're shaking the city for the church. Great. But you're a child when it comes to love. And what good is it if you go out and save the whole world, 
but you bruise and harm and wound the people closest to you because you were gift focused and not love focused. When John decides to write about this, and he writes about love extensively, he's the love disciple. He wrote in John 13, 35 in the old King James version of the scripture. By this, by what? By this shall all men or all people know that you are my disciples if you prophesy. If you sure can sing the power down in church, if you can preach, if you can give people word of knowledge, word of wisdom, if you can work miracles and heal the sick, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If ye have love, watch, one. Now he doesn't say if you have love one for another. He says if you have love one. What's the difference? You have love somewhere down inside you. You do. It may just be a little bit, but you have You have love, but what you have for me doesn't help me unless you give what you have for me to me. A lot of you have love for your spouse. But what you have for them You're not given to them. A lot of you have love for your children. But what you have for them, not given to them. A lot of you have love for your church. I love pesticides. But I can't do nothing with what you have for me. Until you give it. And then in John's ultimate chapter, John 3.16, he gives the greatest verse in the Bible about love. I almost don't want to share it with you because I, I know how we get when we've heard a scripture before. But I want to do my best to unwrap it, to unpack it, to break it down. And I want you to look at it one more time. He starts for God. Point number one, God. If we're breaking the verse down, God is the source. All things flow from him. Creation came out of him. Believe it or not, you came out of him, God the source. You are not just the results of your parents' will. Life comes from God. God, the one that the scripture says bottles your tears and numbers the hair on your head, not counts them, numbers them. So when one fell out in the sink this morning, he said, that's number 3,439. Every one of your hair has its own number and God knows what it is. Most people embrace an understanding of church because you can embrace church without faith. It takes faith to try to embrace an understanding of God. But you cannot embrace church only and find effectiveness worshiping God. Think about it. 
Why do we worship in the first place? Why do we lift our hands? Why do we sing? Why do we shout? Why do we serve? Why do we do any of it? Because at our core, we believe that God is here with us. And that when we sing and that when we worship and when we pray and when we receive the word and when we serve, we believe that God is receiving what we're doing. It all starts with God, the source. For God, the source, point number two, so, the word so indicates the degree, the intensity, the level of what he had for us. How much did God love us? He so loved us. And you need to know, maybe if it's for the thousandth time, you still need to know. It's not just that God loved you. It's that he so loved you. And every single one of us have a story that proves the so. Some of us know we would be rotting in an early grave. That we deserved to be rotting in. And we would be there. And we should be there. But he so loved us. Some of our lives should have fallen completely apart by our own doing. We tried to blow everything up. We did the worst possible that we could do. We set in motion all of the right circumstances to fail. And we would have failed except he so loved us. And it's impossible to see right now. You can look at your neighbor on the left and the right. You all look so good this morning. You smell nice. You look all prim and, and polished and proper. But the truth is... Nobody in the world knows your real story. You ain't ever told anybody everything. And yet God knows the whole, he knows things you forgot. And he so loved you. Now I don't want to break your cover. I don't want to expose you, but I do want you to acknowledge this because it's easy to sit in church and act like he's talking about everybody else. If you got a story that proves the so, I just want you to look at your neighbor and say, he so loved me. Now, even in established relationships, Many of us, most of us, almost all of us, try to hide and shield the dark parts of ourselves from the people that love us. Because experience has taught us that the love of people will only go so far. We've learned every time we, we crossed one of their boundaries and they threatened to leave us. We learned, okay, well, I can't show you that. And we may not even be comfortable with that. We, we may be wanting to work on that, wanting to fix that. But while we work on it, we're going to hide it. Because we learned something about your love. We learned where your love is limited. And every relationship in our life, to some degree, exists in the tension of limited love. So to some degree and to some extent, we have to perform in our own house. We can never really be who we truly are, lest it cause the conflict and love be lost. So we hide. Some hide big, some hide small. 
but we hide or we don't say everything or we don't tell the whole story or we don't recount every event or we're not accountable for every purchase or we're, we're, we delete the search history. You, you, you know, there. But God saw everything. Every sordid detail, every wickedness, every frailty, every brokenness, every darkness, every sick thing, every disgusting thing, everything you're ashamed of, God saw it, not one at a time. He saw it all at once. And not only did he still love you, but his soul loved you at your worst Stay. <laughs> Most people totally misconstrue this. They think God saved you for the ideal person you would become after salvation. That's why they talk, people talk about after salvation experience. They talk about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a, a better person. I'm going to go through rehab or I'm going to get some therapy. I'm going to get some counseling. I'm going to be a better person. To somehow deserve this gracious gift that God gave. What you don't understand is that when God was looking at you, making the decision to give his only son Jesus for you, he wasn't looking at your best and he wasn't looking at your potential. He was looking at your absolute worst. He was looking at the most broken, disgusting parts of you. He was looking at everything about you that his nature hated. And yet, in spite of the sin you commit that he hates, when he looked at you, he loved, no, 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 he so loved loved you at your worst. He so loved you at your lowest. He so loved you that he gave Jesus when you were at your absolute God the source so to the degree number three loved Love is the strongest power that there is. Love is the strongest power that there is. You say, no, preacher, God is the strongest power that there is. I'll remind you, the scripture says God is. Love is the secret to God's divine, infinite power. Love is the mystery behind God's majesty. Love is what balances his judgment and his mercy, his holiness and his kindness, his wrath and his grace. God so loved. Stop. Don't jump ahead in your mind. Don't quote the rest of the verse because John is about to tell you what Jesus did. But in these first three steps, he's telling you why Jesus did it. When you're reading the scripture, please consider it's not just what, it's why. You can hear the what of the gospel a million times and it never penetrate your heart and save you if you never consider the why. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Don't just consider the cross without considering the power the strongest power that held him there. Love was the power that pinned Jesus to the cruel and biting being. To love people who were wicked, who weren't thinking about him, who didn't love him back. Incidentally, it's one of the worst feelings in the world to love somebody that doesn't love you back. You know, Aside, let me step aside. You know Jesus is God. It's the mystery of the Trinity. But the three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, are one. Jesus is God. In Colossians it says, in him, in Jesus, is all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know, Jesus is God. 
what kind of power would it take to kill God? <laughs> you think the Romans killed Jesus? You think Caesar killed Jesus? You think the scribes and the Pharisees killed Jesus? You think the nails killed Jesus? You think a spear in the side killed Jesus? You think the whipping post killed Jesus? You know what killed Jesus? Love. Because it's the strongest power. It took love to kill him. And it took love to raise him back from the dead. But love needs an object to be aimed at. You can't just have love in this nebulous space. Because love is not love without an object to love. So if love was the power that put him on the cross, held him there, and killed him, what was the object of his love? You. And you have trouble believing it because all you're experienced with is the love of other frail people. But your mind has no concept of how deeply, how irrevocably your God is in love with you. He loves you. Let me help you with this. As much as he's ever loved you, because a lot of people think they used to be close to God but then some stuff has happened and now you look at the past and you feel far from God. No, you need to understand this. As much as he's ever loved you, he loves you right now. The nails couldn't hold him. The cross couldn't hold him. He could have got down, regenerated his body, and went on. But he stayed in a painful place because he thought about you. You know, real love will make you stay in painful situations a lot longer than you want to. You, you, have to have, you have to have, just to get a sense of it, you'll never fully know it, but just to get a sense of it, you have to have had a situation in your life where you loved somebody and it was hurting you to love them. And you kept loving them anyway. Have you ever loved somebody and it was hurting you to love them? And you stayed longer than you should. There's this song. This is when I was a teenager. I don't even remember who sang it. But the song was, I keep bleeding. Keep, keep bleeding. Love. That, that I'm in a relationship. I'm in a connection. That's doing nothing but bleeding me. But I can't do nothing about it. Because I love them. That's God's story. That's the why behind the cross. As he was in love with you, backslider. He was in love with you, immoral person. He was in love with you, you liar and you cheat. He was in love with you, you whoremonger. He was in love with you so desperately that he stayed. And kept bleeding until the bleeding was done. Because he so loved. God so loved source, degree, power. Right? God so loved, number four, that he gave. You want to talk about a gift. Jesus was the best gift. The greatest gift that has ever been given. Love must be 
proven. Let me tell you why. Because talk is cheap. So Jesus on the cross was God the Father's way of proving his love to us. Please, please don't give me any more of that horse you know what about this tragedy happened in my life and how can God love me and let this happen? No, 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 no. The demonstration and the proof that God loves you isn't something that happens in your lifetime. The demonstration and proof that God loved you happened when Jesus died on the cross. That's the proof that God loves, values, cherishes, and cares about you. The proof of God's love is not a blessing and it's not a new car and it's not keeping you from getting evicted and it's not getting your kid out of trouble and it's not your dying grandmama being able to live three more years. That is not the proof of God's love. The proof of God's love was Jesus died on the cross for you. So so love gives the best gift, but like any gift, in order to receive it, you got to open. There'll be a couple of presents under my tree this year for my boys. And my wife is a professional rapper. Uh, wrapping paper, not like a beatboxing. <laughs> no thought and no care will be given to the wrapping paper. The, you know, the, the skin of the gift, if you will. They'll just go only concerned about the value of what's. See, with any gift, in order to get it, you have to un. Jesus was God's gift, and they started unwrapping him at the judgment hall when they blindfolded him and stood in a circle and took a stick. And took turns striking him in the face and the head with a pole. Laughing and mocking him saying, if you're a prophet, tell us which one of us hit you. Slowly, the tears begin to develop in his face. The knots begin to bleed on his head. And slowly, slowly, the, the gift started to be unwrapped. Then they took him to the whipping post. Tied his hands above his head, strapped his feet to the floor, and began to beat him, ripping open his flesh 39 times. And we look at it in horror. But the reality is, with every wound he incurred, a gift was received by us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed that took him to the cross. There's just a little bit of wrapping paper left. They nailed his hands. They nailed his feet. They pierced his side and twisted a crown of thorns on his head. With every tear in his flesh... More and more of the gift was being let out and unwrapped. It was love. Unwrapped. Love. Unwrapped. Do you know what Paul calls the skin of Jesus? He calls it the veil of his 
flesh. Okay. Do you know the commentaries record that while they were tearing the flesh of Jesus, brutalizing him in torture, that the veil in the temple that represented the old covenant's barrier between the presence of God and sinful people, when they started tearing the skin of Jesus, the Bible said the veil in the temple started to be torn from the top all the way to the bottom. That the more they opened Jesus up, the more the way to God opened up. The more they opened Jesus up, the more forgiveness opened up. The more they opened Jesus up, the more grace opened up. The more they opened Jesus up, the more love opened up. The more they opened Jesus up, the more kindness they opened up from God. And so now it can be said in Romans chapter 5 that if when we were enemies, at our worst. If he loved us enough to do that then. And he loved us enough to save us by his death. How much more will he continue to save us? By his life. God so loved. That he gave his only begotten son. Point number five, the most amazing to me, that whoever, this is the invitation, whoever, mind-boggling grace, whoever believes in him, does not matter background, doesn't matter the laundry list of offenses and things that you've done. Whoever believes in him, here's the guarantee, will not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved you so much, he refused to live without you. That's the end of love, right? No matter how great the love, I just want to be with you. you know? If I love you, I don't want to be separated from you. I just want to be with you. And God loved you so much. He refused to live apart without you. Somebody was, <laughs> somebody was talking to me on the phone the other week. And uh, the gentleman's son did something that he didn't approve of. And so he said that, you know, he said he hadn't talked to his son to his son, his blood son, in five years. And he said, you know, I love him, but I don't agree with what he's doing. I don't agree with his lifestyle. He's, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. And so I'm, I'm giving him tough love, and I'm not speaking with him until he changes. I said, you don't love your son. I said, you don't love your son. My dad said something to me. I was raised, not just with my parents. I, I was raised in an intense culture. Um, and a fear-based culture in, in the church denomination and camps and every place that we went. It was all fear-based. Preach great messages about all the different ways God is going to send your tail to hell burn forever and uh, I did something I ain't gonna tell you what I was, was talking with my dad and I said uh, well are you gonna kick me out of the house thought he might he looked at me and he said, no, son. He said, there's nothing you could ever do that would cause me to kick you out of the house. I never understood that. I heard it, but I didn't understand that until I had kids. There are times when I want to pick Levi up by his toenails. <laughs> sat down. Just, 
But there's nothing he can do that would ever make me separate. Now I understand what Paul said when he meant what can separate us from the love of God? What can, sep- what can bring a barrier between us if a God that powerful had a love that intense aimed at you, what could you even do about it? It's simple. You've heard it. But one more time, I want you to remember in this challenging season with whatever that you're going through that in your flesh and your nature you are more evil than even you can imagine and yet you are more loved than you will ever understand by God stand to your feet and give the Lord a praise hard to preach to you today because I didn't have a lot of direction. Normally I get a big download from the Lord. You know what I got today? Tell them I love them. Now I don't know who's in shame or who's in insecurity or who's in brokenness or who doesn't feel good enough or who never got it right from other family members to serve at a model so it's hard for you to receive. I don't know where you are or what you're going through, but I came today to be obedient to the calling. I came today to tell you, God said, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. But I've done this. He loves you. But I failed. He loves you. But I've broken my... No, no, no. no. He loves you. Now God, in this moment... I've done what you told me to do. And I pray that the Holy Spirit carry the truth of the gospel deep into the hearts of every person standing in this room. That they would know or grasp to know that which passes knowledge. The love of God. Oh God, I pray you touch their mind with a fresh revelation of how you feel about them. How you look at them. How you see them. How you value them. And I pray it will penetrate the hard crust of the fallow ground of the soul. That the word would pierce that the mind would be captivated, that the creator of the world, the father of all things, the ancient of days, loves me. And the proof of it was Jesus. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him not perish, but have ever lasting life. These things I ask you to do for them, oh God, in the name of Jesus. And I believe even today it is so. Give the Lord one more hand praise all over the world.
Listen, we already sang the song. It's the holiday season. I went a little long today. I'm going to let you go. But remember what I said. Remember what I said. Remember what I said. If you have an offering you'd like to give, you can get it now. Seeds you'd like to sow. The Lord's been blessing people on left and right. I've been getting praise report after praise report. Thank you for being faithful to send me an email or a Facebook message and let me know when God does something for you. It builds our faith. And if you're in here and you got a seed you'd like to sow, an offering you'd like to give, go ahead and get it now. If you're giving on your phone, they can put up the information on how to do that. Would you just say this with me? I receive in my life the love of God. I receive salvation because of my faith in Jesus. I'm one of the whoever believes. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. I believe in my heart God raised him from the dead. And I receive his love today. Baptize me in your love today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, bring your offering. Bring your offering. May the Lord your God bless you. May the Lord your God keep you. May he lift his countenance upon you. May he give you peace. May you go from this place strengthened, full of courage, full of might. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you. We love you so much.